This is the Right Way Podcast. Right Way Podcast. The 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 Right Way Podcast. Hey, I'm Mercedes Mercier and I'm here with Samuel Elliott talking about my second book, Black Lies. Yeah, thank you so much for that introduction to today's episode there, Mercedes Messier. And hello to everyone out there in digital land listening to this particular episode of the Right Way Podcast Program with me, your host, Samuel Elliott. person whom you just heard introducing this episode or tonight's episode, today's episode, this morning's episode, whatever time you're listening to this episode on is none other than today's guest, Mercedes Messier, discussing with me her second novel, Black Lies, which is the return of Laura Fleming, criminal psychologist Laura Fleming, working within Sydney, the Sydney's criminal justice system, criminal sphere, criminal justice sphere, and then she subsequently is assigned a case of a thought-to-be monstrous killer who is seemingly dying. I don't think I'm giving too much away. It's in the synopsis, and they want to get the location of his victim, the the final resting place of his victim, to give the family's closure. And then uh, the more that Laura sort of speaks of him, the more there's more inconsistencies that come up, and then she starts questioning things as well well so it's very much a can't stop turning the pages thriller and it was an absolute pleasure to talk to Mercedes Messier about Black Lies so without any further ado I'd like you to give a big digital round of applause to Mercedes Messier discussing with me her second Laura Fleming novel Black Lies. Mercedes thank you so much for joining me on the Right Way podcast program this beautiful morning me speaking to you from Sydney you speaking to me I think from somewhere in South Australia how you doing what's going on? Hey, thanks so much for having me, Sam. Yeah, I'm in Adelaide. It's a lovely sunny morning today, so at least we've both got nice weather. Exactly, exactly. Perfect. So I always like to start with an oldie but a goodie. Probably heard it before. Um, and it's always a little bit interesting, particularly when it's someone revisiting characters from a previous book. So where did the idea for Black Lies originate from? Did it come from when you were writing White Noise or did it happen thereafter? Tell me a little bit about that, Mercedes. Give us the lowdown. Yeah, so I work in the criminal justice system Mm. as my full-time job. So I get a lot of ideas uh, through my my job, but obviously I have to be very careful to balance that that conflict of interest so I'm not actually, you know, using any one character or prison or situation in my books because obviously that would be immoral and probably illegal. Um, so the idea for Black Lies came from, so there's a team that sits in the office, um, near us who does legislation. Mm. So a few years ago, they were trying to get this new legislation through South Australian Parliament, which actually ended up, um, getting through and it was called the No Body, No Parole legislation. I think you guys have recently brought it in, in New South Wales and it means, you know, exactly as it exactly as it sounds if an offender doesn't release the whereabouts of their victim's body then they're not eligible for parole um and so i was just you know listening to to them talking about this legislation and i don't know it just kind of you know just started this little germ of an idea in the back of my head and then it you know sort of went from there if i could have you know, a prisoner that was in under this, you know, this sort of legislation, they weren't eligible for parole, they were refusing to disclose where their victim's body was. And without going into, you know, any spoilers, all of the potential, you know, pathways that could come from a situation like that. Mm -hmm. 
Let's talk first a little bit about the victim, Cassie Walker, because she's so, I feel, emblematic and you can resonate um, particularly, I mean, obviously I don't have the female experience, but I think I could speculate that uh, most female readers would be able to resonate with her or she embodies what could be anyone, uh, any female out and then subsequently killed or vanished. And I wanted you to talk a little bit about, because it's so much so that even... Laura with Riley starts to envision her own features of her daughter kind of warping into those of Cassie's. How did she sort of um, become this emblem for someone that a lot of readers could resonate with, do you think, Mercedes, in terms of that just kind of going home? I think, yeah, I wanted to sort of explore that, you know, that idea that a lot of women have, that they are just minding their own business. They're just Mm. doing, you know, their daily life. Like Cassie was just at the bus stop, just waiting to catch the bus home after doing a shift at the restaurant that she worked at. And, you know, this this man came up to her, offered her a lift home, you know, in the guise of, you know, I'm trying it's late at night, I'm trying to keep you safe. She refused. Then, you know, he got, you know, you know, angry and affronted that she refused his help. And, you know, it, it it went from there. So I really I wanted to explore just that that idea that you know, women unfortunately just aren't safe in so many areas of our lives. Like sitting at a bus stop at ten PM on a on a weeknight shouldn't be a risky activity. It should mm. be something that everyone can do in their daily life. But unfortunately, it's not. Mm. And I also wanted to weave in, not obviously, but hopefully, I did it subtly. The fact that she was this you know, this blue-eyed, chestnut-haired, white girl, and she got all of this coverage. She, You know, it was all front-page newspapers, top news, web articles, talked about on, you know, breakfast morning TV shows. And, you know, without going into it too much, without sort of slamming it in the reader's face, I wanted just to sort of weave the idea that perhaps it wouldn't have got that much attention and that much coverage if it had been a person of colour that, that that had happened to. Mm, definitely. And then that came across, suddenly it was done, and uh, if it still came across, loud, message received loud and clear. Talk a little bit about in terms of, and again, I don't want to give too much of the plot away, but the seemingly perpetrator of of this kind of monstrous act, um, Thomas Novak. And there's one line, and again, I think we'll just talk a little bit about subtlety, but I think there's one line that mentioned about, it was Gary talking about how he's a normal sort of everyday bloke. And if you know if you, if there was something off, you'd sense that something was off and stuff like that. And I think that this again sort of makes him this emblem of perceived as the normal everyday bloke, and then therein kind of denotes a sense of goodness or kind of a, I guess, blokey benevolent character. Talk a little bit about that as well, because I feel like that sort of captured your intent, attention there, and imagination to say is in terms of what you wanted to depict. Yeah, I think I'm really interested in the psychology behind offending, obviously, mm. because in my you know, full-time job, I see a lot of defenders, a lot of inmates. And I just, I wanted to be, I always want to be careful of portraying, you know, a villain or an offender in a, in one way, because there really is no, no one way that, you know, someone can go through this, through this offending journey. And I think there's always, looking back, if you're, you know, if you're a trained person in understanding the signs of 
you know, someone going down this offending path, there's there's triggers and there's, you know, things that you can recognise. But to an average person, someone who, you know, on a, a milder spectrum, well, you know, object, you know, sort of, I guess, milder spectrum than a murderer, you know, like a domestic violence perpetrator, you know, you see in the media all the time, oh, he was a great bloke, you know. Mm-hmm. Everyone, everyone loved him. He was a family man. He had great friends. He, you know, he played footy, all of this, you know, all this kind of stuff. And yes, you can be, you know, this person that has friends that, you know, has a family that is out there working is, you know, is doing all of these things on the surface, but behind that, you know, behind that mask, they're, they're, you know, perpetrating these, these acts of violence. And so I, I did want to explore and show that, you know, you can be this person that on the outside looks like you've got it all together. You're this, you know, this normal everyday member of society, but, Mm. you know, in the background, there's, there's something deeper going on. But I think I've always really been interested in psychology and the, Mm. and the psychology of offending and sort of the pathways and the things in life that can lead to an offending lifestyle. And there's a, obviously a myriad of them from, you know, from potential brain injury to, you know, the the way you're brought up to role modelling, um, to, to brain damage, you know, there's, there's multiple, multiple pathways. And I just really enjoy exploring that and giving it, I think, a little bit more depth than just, uh, you know, someone that's just a violent offender, I guess. Yeah. It's, it's challenging the the public perception or the this kind of untarnishable sort of uh, figurehead of a character that people sort of perceive other people as, particularly the sort of everyday good bloke and then trying to wrap their heads around when someone seemingly does something monstrous and says, well, he was a good bloke, you know. Um, I would have known that something was off if the case. You talked a little bit about psychology as well and the kind of the reasons that drive people to offending or the differences there. I'll tell you another thing that I found to be really interesting, Mercedes, was the disparate sort of caseload that Laura has. So there's the two sort of main ones. We've got Thomas Novak, they're completely diametrically opposed opposite ends of the spectrum in terms of offending. So you've got seemingly this remorseless kind of cold-blooded monstrous killer, Thomas Novak, and then you've got James on the complete other end of the spectrum who's this sort of... Uh, I'm going to say sweet is a pretty, you know, it's just without giving too much away in terms of what's happened there. I mean, you know, this tragedy has happened seemingly at his fault and he's kind of been reviled by the public and then sort of even some of his loved ones are a bit slow to forgive him or can't. And talk a little bit about that as well, because obviously that's been very much kind of uh, influenced or established by what you've yourself have witnessed within your profession these sort of different caseloads and this this need, uh, this innate need to be able to switch between those types of people in order to successfully communicate with them. Tell me a little bit about that. Mm. Yeah, it's a the job of a, a psychologist in a prison is just one of the most difficult and important, I think, I think, roles. And I think when I first started writing and I wrote White Noise, I really wanted to explore a character who believes in second chances and believes in rehabilitation because Mm. I guess what a lot of people perhaps don't understand because, you know, prisons are sort of, you know, they're a section away from society. I guess, I guess rightly so, you know, they've got, you know, the big walls, the barbed wire, like people don't really know sort of what, what goes on 
in there and except for, you know, the horror stories that you hear in the media, which, you mm. know, do occur. But I wanted on balance to explore someone who works within that system every day but goes in there really trying her hardest to, you know, to break these cycles of crime, to rehabilitate, which is what prisons are about, you know. Mm. A, you know, offenders' punishment is their deprivation of liberty. That's handed down by the court, so that's their punishment. Then once they go into prison, their punishment is not, you know, being denied water or being denied food or sunshine or, you know, all that kind of stuff. That's not that's not a very that's a very old school model of what of what prisons are. I think we're moving forwards into this, you know, this model where we're trying to rehabilitate inmates, you know, we're trying to break those cycles of crime, create fewer victims of crime. Mm. Obviously, make sure they don't come back because incarcerating a person is very expensive. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, trying to keep them out, um, saving taxpayer dollars as well. Um and I, I wanted to highlight that a little bit as well, that, you know, trying to change these people once they come in and break a sometimes a lifetime of of offending and, you know, this, this lifestyle choice. Yeah, and trying to make them when they're released because the vast majority of inmates will be released and, you know, they're living they're living in our suburbs, on our streets, you know, they're, they're everyday, you know, I'm not condoning what they've done because they're obviously in prison for a reason. Mm. But, you know, this let's lock them up and ignore them sort of mindset obviously hasn't Doesn't hasn't work. been working. And the only way to to change this is to try and make them into better people upon exit from custody than they were entering mm. custody. So, yeah, I, I think to answer, to go back to your question, I wanted to sort of show a broad, a broader variety of of inmates in there and just to short, sort of show like a different, um, I guess, situation than, you know, what you might tend to think someone is in prison for. And, you know, without going into to too much detail, he he's in he's a young kid, he's in prison for something that, you know, it was his fault and it did have terrible consequences mm. and, you know, the, the the parents and the families of his victims, you know, it's the, it's just ended their, it's ended their whole world, you know, you know, their, mm. their, their son or in this case they were sons, their sons ended up dying. It wasn't a, you know, wasn't a premeditated event, mm. um, but it happened and, it's this sort of balancing act between, you know, considering, you know, the the, the feelings of the the families of the victim versus the actual perpetrator. And I just I like sort of exploring that and juggling that that fine line and sort of showing the sort of both sides to a story. Because in this situation, he, you know, he also got a life sentence, and, and yeah. what what he did will never will never leave him, and he'll carry that with him forever you know rightly so as as some people would argue um yeah so i just I, I think i wanted to show that that sort of balance that you know not everyone in prison is a you know is a bikey is a is a murderer is a you know in there for you know assault or you know fraud or something like that you know there are people in there that that are in there on a spectrum yeah definitely on a spectrum and I mean, there's also a kind of subset of that or sort of related to it is about how some family members or victims can can forgive and then how others can't. I mean, I think Thomas 
Novak's daughter talks about how, you know, she forgives, oh, that's still my dad. And then, you know, members of James' family don't do the same. Um, you know, and then there's the question about what, what what's unforgivable and what's not. Um, mm. But what I kind of wanted to then ask about is to kind of get into the nitty gritty of some of my favorite scenes, obviously, with the interrogations or the conversations between Laura and Thomas Novak. And I actually think, I must tell you, Mercedes, maybe it's because, you know, God, God forbid I double in writering myself. So, um, but I actually think that some of those scenes, because they're so granular in terms of two people in a room, that kind of actually can be the hardest to write because there's nothing that you can kind of hide behind. There's not a lot of people talking. There's not a lot of seemingly like a lot of action going on. And it's all about minute changes in facial expressions, body languages, et cetera, et cetera. And I think, again, this is obviously something in which that uh, your own vocational, your own sort of career has greatly sort of assisted in the the research and understanding of this to give it this authenticity. But tell me about that because it must be not the easiest stuff to write it's juicy it's meaty on the page when i'm reading it obviously but in terms of writing it tell me a little bit about that and how you go about doing that yeah that's that's so true there is it is sort of a situation where there's not not a lot else going on it's you yep. know and it's uh, you know it's in this room that's this, this this soundproofed room that's deliberately very minimal very bare there's no personal details of the of the psychologist in the room nothing mm. for the you know the inmate to latch onto or be distracted by so you're right it's this room that's essentially it's soundproof this blank sort of room where it's just two people and a desk and just talking but I loved writing those scenes I think they were almost my favorite ones yeah good stuff. right I love that um exploring that sort of power dynamic between two you know two clever people and just that sort of that battle of wills and you know trying to trying to I guess you know, Laura trying to build this this trust and this relationship in in any way in any way possible, and she's, you know, without giving too much away, she's on a time limit. Mm. Um, she have you know the, these months that she would usually slowly build up this this relationship, and so she's really got to 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 push the boundaries and and do it as as quickly as she can. Um, but I yeah, I just love writing those scenes because I love just. I think di- like I've always really enjoyed writing dialogue and so uh, yeah I just I really enjoy the way that a scene can just be held together by two characters talking to each other and like you said there's minute sort of facial expressions and body movements that you know a psychologist is trying to you know read and understand to a to a certain extent um but it I enjoy also the the idea of being a very reluctant, <laughs> like Thomas Novak is a very reluctant, um, you know, client of mm. of Laura's and that distrust of of authority and that you know that runs through prisons and that no, I'm not telling you anything because as soon as you know something, it can be used against me. That that sort of culture in a mm. prison that makes it sitting down and bearing your soul to a psychologist, it's just, you know, it's something that they don't really consider and it's really, really difficult. So I enjoyed that challenge of showing Laura sort of unpicking his brain a little bit and sort of getting in there, you know, with mm. her with her expertise and her passion. Like she, I, you know, she's such a passionate psychologist and she loves her job and, you know, she she really tries her hardest and puts her all you know into into a job which can often be to the detriment of 
you know, her personal life, I guess. Mm. Yeah. I mean, in terms of uh, so much to unpack there, so I'm just trying to reel with that. But in terms of the way I think that one of the first conversations, one of the first lines when I think they sit down is talks about Tom Snowback and everything that he, everything about him is defensiveness. I think I'm paraphrasing a bit, but that's, that's, mm-hmm. that's, that's the sentence. And I was like, that was, that was just excellent setup, particularly because you've already set up the stakes being the family's needed gravesite someplace to mourn so that's like spot on and then again uh, I, won't, I won't go into the stakes as to why there's a ticking time clock and etc but that's you know made so much sense in terms of that as well we talked about well you mentioned also Laura's skill and I think that it's it's good because it's it prevails throughout and it sort of shines throughout and I think that what some crime books can have uh, is that there's they've got a detective or someone that has this skill that you've you've you're told from the outset, but then you see very little indication of it until it's like a do sex Macnas kind of saving savior at the end. Whereas with Laura, that's definitely not the case because it shows it time and time again within kind of like rap- rapidly identifying something, be it a piece of conversation or a topic to talk about or something else. So it's like rocking up at people's doors that probably don't want to let her in. And communicating with you know with a baby or something like that you know fondness for animals fondness for cooking let's talk about that let's explore that next thing you know we're talking so in terms of this ability to kind of um pick up and be so perceptive talk a little bit about that as well mercedes in terms of how laura mm-hmm. sort of honed this skill and how it shines throughout is that something that you had to kind of keep at the forefront of your mind when you're writing these scenes is this how it started yeah. from the outset? It, it was and I have a friend who's um, a psychologist who oh. I work with. I'm not a psychologist, but um, she's, you know, within within the um, department that I work for. And, you know, she sort of gave me this advice of trying to build this bridge and find this connection with another human. And that's all you have to do is just find one tiny little connection something that they're passionate about something that you know you can connect with them on a human level and then once you've got that you can slowly build on that connection and that's what's that's what's creating that trust and that and that relationship so yes I I wanted Laura to have that sort of in all aspects of her life because you know I didn't want her to be able to just switch it on when you know she was at work but then you know switch it off I I really wanted to have you know a character who you know, is is empathetic and she's a, you know, she's a people person, which which makes her very, very good at her job. She's she's a little bit idealistic, which which I like because I think that that sort of reflects reflects me as well. And I think you kind of have to be a little bit idealistic to work in the job that she does. Definitely. Um, yeah. So yeah, I wanted her to show that, you know, in all aspects that she is this person that can form human connections with people. She also doesn't. I wanted to have her fairly non-judgmental. Mm. I really wanted just to show her interacting with people from you know various socioeconomic groups. That you know she she's this she's a highly educated woman who you know has had this this fairly straightforward life. She's she's had some. Some, some traumas in her past that are explored a little bit in um, white noise. But, you know, she's this person that can, you know, she can talk to the, you know, to the to the wife of a, you know, OMCG motorcycle gang member. She can talk to, you know, her director who's this, you know, uptight psychologist. You know, she can talk to and form friendships with, 
you know, a sort of a bit of a rough around the edges officer who, you know, is sort of the opposite of her and that, you know, she, you know, doesn't sort of abide by any of the rules and she's just so, which is Sam, like she's just so uniquely her that Laura's a little bit more, you know, wound up and a little bit more uptight. Um, yeah, so I just wanted to show her having these these relationships with everyone and not not being judgmental and just being able to to really I think personify what it means to be a, a good psychologist. Yeah, fully dimensional and realized character in terms of not just this sort of uh, automaton robot focusing on this this crime, but also you know the balance of the personal and the private life as well for these people. So yeah, sort of navigating office politics. You know, people complaining about overworked caseloads or being perceived as being cut out or you know her being favored that sort of stuff. But then also with her personal life as well and sort of how that kind of bleeds into it too. Because I mean, you can be the most well adjusted and as you mentioned, good term users, empathetic person. Um, but then that can also still, I think it's just unavoidable, particularly when you're, if you're talking to certain monstrous criminals or people accused of monstrous crimes. And then as I briefly touched on the very beginning of chatting with you, Mercedes, in terms of, um, how that can color your own sort of, uh, interactions with, in this instance, with Laura and her daughter Riley, in terms of, uh, seeing her, her features, um, morph into that of the victim so talk a little bit about that as well because you can be the most well-adjusted person but still that's I feel like that's just you know short of being a psychopath yourself there's no way you can kind of compartmentalize that sort of stuff absolutely not and you know Laura has had this this trauma in her past and she still carries that with her and I I wanted to to show that you can be this person that's trained in psychology you can understand you know the all the theory behind trauma and how that can present in a person and you know how they can carry that throughout the years but then when it comes to you it's still you know it's a different kettle of fish when yep. when it's yourself and she she does she carries trauma from you know an incident that happened to her daughter Riley and it colors the way she reacts and what she does and you know her her actions and you know she sure she's a psychologist sure she's you know goes to therapy herself but it's not a you know it's not a cure-all it's not Mm. you know once you're gone you're you're fine bam at the end of your sessions you're done you're fixed you're cured you're you know she'll she's still working on it and it's something that she will work on for you know for years and years and years so yeah I wanted to show that she still has this this trauma and even despite understanding all the theory behind trauma and PTSD and how it can affect a person, she sometimes can't see when it's affecting her when it when it comes to her daughter, who's the most important person in her life. Yeah, definitely. I think that it's 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 just a case of you know being a human and, and if that if you're dead into that or if that no longer impacts you or if you're no longer concerned about that and, and or terrified about it. Mm-hmm. Kind of like harkens back to, I guess, people talking about like people that work in, you know, fixing child exploitation or going after people that make child exploitation material and stuff. And when they talk about looking at it and they're like, if it, if you're, if, if you're no longer shocked by it, that's when it's, it's, you know, it's concerning because that means that you've kind of reached that point where you're no longer essentially a, a human um, capable of feeling. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the, the writing process because we, we mentioned, Mercedes, in terms of the interviews and the balancing of that, but I, I wanted to know, particularly because this is this is this is book two now, and it's 
you know, there's always, and for some people, you know, all my writer friends, that some people are impacted by the dreaded book two syndrome. Some aren't. And it's a question I always like to to ask because, you know, you know, no two answers are the same. So how was it for you going about, did you, did you um, finish White Noise and then immediately start on Black Lies or did you, was it pressurised? Tell, tell me all, leave nothing out. Yeah, it, yeah, it, it, there was a pressure. I think it's the difference between, obviously, I mean, it's, you know, it's pretty obvious that when you write your first book, you've got years, you've got essentially as long as you, yep. you know, as long as you need to write this book and get it perfect. And then the hardest part, I think, sometimes of writing a first book is letting it go and yep. deciding when you've tweaked it and perfected it enough. And sometimes you do, you just have to let it go, even though you're not, you know, <laughs> you're not 100% comfortable, because when will you ever be? That's, you know, speaking from sort of my experience, um, yeah. And so I did start, I started White Noise, uh, sorry, Black Lies about six months after Black uh, White Noise came out. Okay. And so the way that I write is I am a very regimented writer. So my brain, the way just my brain works is I need to sit down and I need to write the exact same amount of words per day. Okay. Five days a week. And so so I write 1,200 words a day, five days a week. So I know that, you know, at the end, just under four months, I'll have completed 80,000 word, you know, 80 to 90,000 word um, first draft. And so that's just, that's just what works for me. So then I can, I work back from my deadline date. So, you know, just say my deadline date was, uh, you know, 30th of August, I'll, I'll work back from how much time I'll need to do this first draft, how much time I'll need to build in for, for editing. So oh God, that's so <laughs> regimented. I know, I know. That's that's just that's just what works for me because if I did it a little bit looser, I think it would just I would have so much anxiety and stress. So I think for me that's that's a way to manage manage my anxiety around it and know that if I do this thing every single day by such and such date, I will be done and I can meet that deadline. That's just <laughs> that's just what works for me, but that obviously works. doesn't work for others. Are you a plotter or a pantser? I'm a pantser and yep. I just go back. I, I Sorry, I don't go back. So I'll write my 1,200 words. I'll finish at the end of that sentence. Yep. I won't finish a paragraph. I won't finish a chapter. Once I've done that 1,200 words, save it close my laptop, walk away. Next day I'll get up, I'll read the, you know, the previous line or two, dive just straight back in. So by the time I've finished a first draft, I haven't read what I wrote at the beginning yep. in, you know, four months, say. So that's that's good and bad because it yep. means that I can sort of go back and see it with fresh eyes, but fresh it also eyes, means yep. don't write down stuff you know, small details, they sort of end up changing halfway through. Yeah. Like, you know, a couple of instances where someone's name's just completely changed halfway through or, you know, eye colour or little stuff like that, which you can pick up in the edits. Um, but, yeah, I'm, I think my edit process is probably around two to three times as long as actually writing the book oh, yeah. because, <laughs> because, you know, you have to go back and you have to put all that, you know, those clues and red herrings in like when you don't know where the story is going when you're, when you're writing it. Hmm. 
you know, you've got to you've got to go back and sort of add or or change or you know remove some some details if it doesn't end up going down a path that you're expecting it to. But mm-hmm. that's just that's the way I love to to write. Like I've I've tried to be a plotter. <laughs> I've tried to sit down, open up, you know, this blank document and plot everything out. But that halfway through, I just get so bored. I'm like, no, I just want to get into the fun bit. I just want to be yeah. writing. But I do think it would make life a lot easier if um if I was a plotter. <laughs> yeah, no, I hear you. Um, does the does the word count fluctuate or that that's that's not a thing for you? Okay. Okay. No, I do twelve hundred words a day and 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 that's it. Um I tend to because it's because it's a sort of a spewing of of you know words and it's basically just me. I think the first draft I, I heard somewhere is just telling yourself the story. Yeah. And so yeah. that's what that's what works for me. But then I have to go back and fill in like a lot of, you know, backstory, a lot of details on, you know, setting and other stuff that I might have missed out because I was just racing through. So I do try and make that first draft a little bit leaner than than the what I would expect the completed manuscript to be because I know that I, I need to go back and sort of fill in that stuff, like add, you know, layer and texture and colour and all that kind of stuff that, you know, just telling myself that bare bones of the of the story once I've got that down I can be like oh okay I can see the shape of it I know now you know what this what this story looks like now I can go back and meet on the skeleton for a really weird analogy <laughs> well whatever you do I mean it works for you Mercedes no doubt because we're, we're talking about book two and I'm confident there's probably a book three you've got going in the works but um you know the question that I always want to ask it's the the final one is have you ever reached a point, a sort of crossroad, as it were, in your writely journey where you considered uh, giving up? And if so, what made you want to give up and what made you sort of prevail? Yes. Share as much as you feel comfortable with. I am someone who is riddled with self-doubt. Oh, yeah. <laughs> constant, constant self-doubt. So there's been multiple, multiple times I've you know i've i've wanted to give up and to briefly highlight my my publishing journey um i think when i when i decided i wanted to take it seriously i went to fiona mackintosh who's a yeah south australian author she writes sort of historical fiction but she's also writes crime she does twice yeah, um, does a does a masterclass, so like mm. a five-day sort of writing workshop for aspiring writers. And so I went to that and I was writing um, women's commercial fiction at the time and she sort of sat me down and she was, she was like, I don't know why you aren't writing crime. You've got this, you know, really unique insight into a world that, you know, not a whole lot of people sort of understand what, what goes on. But at the time I was just... I was just so intimidated by the genre, I think, mm. because I, you know, crime and thrillers are my favourite genre and I'd just grown up reading them and I'd read all these incredible, you know, crime novels and I thought, I, I can't do that. <laughs> I can't, I, you know, I just, yeah, I just let the, I think I let the self-doubt win for, for such a long time and I can't even remember. I think I was just like, it just happened one day. I was just reading this crime novel that I was really enjoying and I just think I got annoyed at myself and I was just like, come on, <laughs> you can do this. Why not at least just give it a go? And so I did. And then, you know, that's that's how White Noise came to be. 
But there were many, many, many times across the publishing journey when I was, you know, rejection after rejection for earlier manuscripts that I just thought, oh, well, <laughs> you know, I, I can't do this. This is, you know, this is a, a dream that happens to other people but, you know, is, isn't going to happen to me. But I think it sounds a little bit cliched but I can't not write. I yep. think writing for me is it's definitely mental health management. It, mm. For me it's, um, it's a form of meditation. It's a time where I'm concentrating on one thing and I'm in one world and nothing else can can come into my head i think I've, i think i've heard it described as being in a flow state so you're just concentrating on one thing and your brain can't you know turn over churn over all these usual thoughts that you know i have throughout the day so i can't i think i always felt like i i can't not write i'm going to mm. be writing writing's always going to be a part of my life so i might as well keep trying so glad that you have and totally resonate with the self-doubt. I know it all too well. That is the demon that sits on my back and has always has. But um, look, say it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you on the Right Way podcast program today, talking all things Black Lives. Thank you so much for having me, Sam. I had a blast. So everyone, there you have it. That was me and Mercedes Messier discussing her second Laura Fleming novel, Black Lies. So huge thanks to Mercedes for talking to me on the show today, this evening, tonight, whatever time you're listening to this on, that is the time that we have the convo. But yeah, it was an absolute pleasure to talk to Mercedes about Black Lies. Uh, and so I'll thank her now. And while I'm in a thanking mood, of course, I'm going to next thank you, dear listener, for listening to this particular episode of the Right Way Podcast Program, as well as all other episodes of the What We Like to Refer to, as you know full well of being a listener, such an ardent listener for so long, the ever-proliferating back catalogue there. If you haven't already, be sure to give a cheeky follow on Spotify or iTunes, Apple iTunes or SoundCloud, wherever you're listening to this on. And do be sure to peruse and listen slash devour all of the previous episodes going back as far as we're getting up to our third year nearly of of the show we started uh monica mcinerney back in november 2020 so what a wild journey it has been i think it's somewhere in the region of 60 to 70 plus people guests have been on the show talking about their various creative pursuits uh so it's been absolute whirlwind so yeah thank you so much to you for listening to this episode be sure to share and to share verbally with your friends families enemies alike about the show as well so they give it a cheeky listen to uh, stay tuned on the socials as well my instagram is probably the best one to go for for both the author page which is samuel underscore elliot underscore author that's my personal as well as the shows itself which is all one word the right way podcast so check them out give them a follow stay tuned got lot more guests coming up not as many you might notice as previous years but that's because i've been focusing on my own long form work as well uh but yeah got quite a few exciting ones coming up for the rest of the year as well so do be sure to follow across the socials as well to keep informed but uh in the interim thank you so much for listening to this episode and i bid you all a good day